one of the things that I think is an issue more broadly is that it's very easy for people who work in marketing and e-commerce to have the perception that my customer looks like me. Welcome to Marketing Unfucked, the only podcast that helps you unfuck your marketing by hosting conversations with all the badasses in the industry. We're your hosts, Siobhan and Russell, and today we're joined by Janice Thompson as we discuss marketing playboy to young men to marketing makeup to postmenopausal women. Let's do this. Now, I was telling Janice that I am super impressed by her background. Yeah, well, that's one of the things I wanted to touch on because it's quite diverse. I have worked with Janice in the past, so I know that part quite well. But then I think we can chat about some of the stuff you did there and then explore both sides of that. But wait, where did you work together? Or if you don't want to name drop, what did you do together? Uh, I think we're allowed to name work. drop because it's, it's on your... Yeah, so we worked together at Birchbox, the oh, okay. sort of beauty subscription box. Is that the right way of putting that? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what you would call that. Yeah, and it was really interesting doing some stuff there with Janice, especially with a business that grew as fast as they did very early and did that through, at the time, what was quite a new channel mix where it was quite heavy on the social acquisition, but also combined with subscription, which causes problems from a data perspective for a lot of companies when it comes to retention and understanding a returning customer who is interested in your recurring product set, but also is a potential lapsed customer, potential person who's going to leave you. And therefore, what is your performance of your marketing positively and negative, which was an interesting conversation to have. I don't know if you want to expand on that, Janice. Yeah, there were some really interesting things that we got to learn about kind of very much we come from that last click background and understanding that journey to purchase and being able to evaluate. There were certain things like, for example, particularly those kind of content affiliates, people who are doing like unboxing and reviews. We didn't see a huge amount of conversions from that. But what we saw was people who touched those on their journey to purchase were much, much more likely to convert and stay long term later on in their journey. And things like, uh, particularly, we were able to get very granular about what was attracting the right sort of customer who stayed long term. And there were really like specific things that the people who came in, if we ran a short term offer that ran for like a week, the people who came in the first couple of days of that offer actually stayed much longer than the people who came in just as that offer was about to end. So basically, the people who've been thinking about subscribing for a while and then saw an offer were actually really, really valuable. But towards the end of the offer, the people who taken a bit more convincing were then less valuable and more likely to cancel later on. So we were able to get into really very, very specific about creative and offer and journey and all of those things, which was incredibly valuable. And I think this leads into conversations around like lifetime value that people is the sort of the holy grail from a marketing perspective. But actually, the reverse of that is the thing that people try to do all the time. And I see all the time where they chase that short term win. So now you've moved from subscription to targeting what is a different segment of customers where you are at the moment. Do you want to firstly expand 
on what it is you do at the moment and the types of customers, because I know, but the audience doesn't know, and how you've tried to move away from chasing that short-term goal of a conversion today and, and what you're doing where you are now. Yeah, it's definitely been, I've learned some very valuable lessons that have been incredibly useful. So the brand I work for now is called Look Fabulous Forever. So we're a makeup and skincare direct-to-consumer e-commerce brand for older women. But by older women, I don't mean what the rest of the beauty industry does. An older woman's anywhere over 30 as far as they're concerned. Our products are specifically designed for post-menopause. So our customers are predominantly in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And we're 100% direct-to-consumer e-commerce business. So you can't buy us in stores or anything like that. You can only buy from us directly online. And because of the nature of our consumer and because nobody else is producing products like us at all, they're formulated and designed completely differently. Because of that, we have a very long journey to purchase. We have this very kind of in-depth People get to know us and understand our founder, Trisha's story, that she started the business when she was 65. So that was nine years ago. She's 74 now, the most incredible, inspiring woman. But we have to take people's journey to understand um, Trisha's story and why she founded the business and how frustrated she was with the same issues that our customers face and the specifics of how our products are designed to be different and why and what issues that they address and all of those things to eventually come to a conversion after a long journey and a lot of touch points that if we were looking at last click, we just would never be able to grow our business because we wouldn't be bringing enough people in at that top of the funnel, getting that journey to know us to then convert later. But it's interesting because you've got almost the way I see it, two little struggles or, or challenges there, right? Because you've got the target market, which is a very unique market. And then you've got this concept that you can't really use last click, which is reliable, but not doesn't work for you. So I'd, I'd love to first touch on the first one, because you're saying you're targeting women over menopause. So you're already touching a subject that people don't want to talk about. And how do you go about this? I mean, how are you dealing with this with your marketing, with your advertising? Just tell us a little bit about that, because to me, this is the, it's really interesting. I mean, for us, the thing that makes such a difference is actually just representation. The fact that our customers see women who look like them in our advertising. We have this amazing image of Trisha. You know, she's got her sunglasses on. She's in a convertible car. She looks amazing. And our customers just go nuts for that type of stuff. And very, you know, we've got a Facebook ad running at the moment. It's like a very unvarnished before and after picture that, you know, people really, really resonate. It's like, do you know what that is, what I look like without my makeup? on, um, you know, when I'm in my 70s and, you know, then you show what the difference makeup can make and, and all of those things. So I think for us, that key is representation. And I think it's about content for us as well. It's not, we're not just selling you a product we're showing. How do you use it in a different way now? Because you have to use different techniques as different products. So for us, one of our absolutely crucial touch points on our journey is our YouTube channel. And we know where we see engagement on YouTube very organically. That's a, 
a classic way that we bring people to our brand. Suddenly women are watching this tutorial video that actually has someone that looks like her, is telling her things that are actually valuable to her and not the stuff that she just sees every day in wider society is incredibly powerful. Do you get any pushback? Like, do you get any negative feedback on this? Because, I mean, I think it's great that you're putting people out there who are the people you are targeting. I think this is ideal. But do you get people who do come to you and say, oh, we want to see that perfect ideal? Or or, or why are you putting older women in our ads? Or is it just positive? No, I mean, we do get negative stuff. We do get, you know, oh, that picture's been retouched Mm -hmm. and all of those things. And it's like, no, 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 actually, that's just how we've got this. I mentioned that Facebook app that's running at the moment. One thing that's really interesting is because she's wearing a very flattering shade of lipstick, it makes her teeth look whiter. And there's loads of comments on this ad saying, oh, you've retouched her teeth. It's like, no, we haven't. We've just put her in a flattering shade of lipstick. So, you know, we do get negative comments, but they're not around the kind of women that we use at all. So something you you mentioned a little bit earlier was around the journeys are longer. And if I had a consultant hat on, I'd go, well, I know why that is. It's because it's older people and they take longer to make decisions. But have you got any sort of qualitative answers to the reasoning behind that process takes longer? Do they typically consume more content and it needs to be a more educational process compared to your experience? Like where's the not just quantitative logic on this, but have you done anything qualitative to to sort of back up that consultant statement I just made? Yeah, one of the things I did earlier this year, actually, was I did um, some in-depth interviews with our most valuable customers, and all of them talked about, I started watching your YouTube videos first. We've spoken to YouTube recently, and they said, our videos, on average, the watch time is six times longer than they typically see. So our, our consumers are are willing to watch and engage and all of those things. And, you know, while, you know, we have a lot of work to do on things like site speed and that's a priority for us, one of the things that always surprises me is how much our customers are willing to push through and wait for a page to load and things like that, that a, a, a Gen Z customer would have been well gone by now. Well, they remember the 56K internet probably. It's when they started. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But is that almost a benefit, right? Because you have a target market that doesn't really care about that so much. And so you get to focus on what's important, which is communicating with the customer and making sure that you're representing them. It's almost refreshing, right? I mean, you've, you come from Birchbox and various other places. To you, how does that feel, the difference? Is it like just a relief that you don't have to sit there and focus on site speed all the time or you know, optimizing everything perfectly or that you get to really speak to the customer? Or did you do the same at Birchbox and it was just a different dynamic? I think these things are always important. I think even if our customers are willing to push through that, you know, for me, you know, that's why site speed is still a priority for me because I need, I want to give them the best possible experience. And particularly because we have such a loyal customer base, they deserve the best possible experience in return and that's the thing that plays into things like coming back and placing another order and kind of all of those things are are really are really important but I think that piece 
of kind of how you treat your customers and what's important to them and listening to them, I think was actually quite key in part of the reason that I managed to grow Birchbox in the UK as much as I did was listening to our customers and also listening to people who weren't our customers. And I think one of the things that I think is an issue more broadly is that it's very easy for people who work in marketing and e-commerce to have the perception that my customer looks like me. And that was the problem that we had at Birchbox. We did a big piece of research when I joined to understand who our potential customer was. And it came back and said we had two potential target audiences. And one of them we were serving incredibly well. And she looked a lot like the women who worked in our office. She was a young urban professional with a bit too much month at the end of her money. And the research said, do you know what? There's another customer who's a bit more old. She's a bit older. She's more likely to live outside London. She's more likely to have children. And in particular, she's more financially mature. So she's more likely to buy from our e-commerce offering and not just a subscription box. So she'll be a more valuable customer. So it took that data to shift our perception away from my customer is like me to my customer. And we used to call her Sarah. It's like, what would Sarah think about this? What does Sarah do? You know, what fashion brands does Sarah buy? Those kind of things, trying to challenge our perception. And I think that was a really good grounding for me is don't just make the assumption that the customer is like me, the customer thinks like me. It's like, what does the data tell me? So this is interesting because you're saying this was an issue in marketing and e-commerce, right? That people are essentially getting stuck in these personas that they have developed in their heads and they refuse to be flexible about it. And half the time, these personas are not real people. So how do we unfuck that process? How do you go about this? Like, how do we make that persona more realistic? How, what steps have you taken where you are now or at Birchbox to make this more realistic concept? I think there are two crucial things. One is to actually talk to customers and listen to customers. That one of the things that I brought in was a quarterly customer survey. So we benchmark a whole load of things. Like, for example, one of the things that we offer is you can try any product. And if you don't like it or it doesn't suit you, you can return it for free for a full refund. And, you know, trying to go going into boots and saying this lipstick doesn't suit, you know, you're not getting a refund, believe me. So, you know, one of the things we are, we benchmark is what proportion of our customers know that we have this, this guarantee. But we also do a lot of qualitative stuff. We ask what kind of content do they want to see um, and what, did, what was their experience with their last product like all of this stuff, kind of really, really rich data. And in addition, we have a closed Facebook group. And that's really, really crucial for us that we get to see our customers' unvarnished lives. They share with things, things with us like the birth of a grandchild or the loss of a partner or a cancer diagnosis or like all of these, these things, like really intimate view into their lives. So we get to know our customers as real people, as part of that community, which I think helps us stop thinking of our customer as a single person and actually as a whole range of people. And I think the other piece is taking a step back from where your customer is now and think about who your customer could be. That, you know, this is something that I really 
try to challenge e-commerce brands and say, look, you know, over 65s are the fastest growing market in e-commerce. Within our customer base, 40% do all or most of their shopping online. 88% have used online banking. Um, over 80% of them use some kind of streaming and, um, you know, audio services. You know, these are not technical, you know, cavemen. These are people who are using e-commerce sites every day. And actually, if we think about them more, that's a huge opportunity for every brand instead of just endlessly chasing Gen Z and millennials. Yeah. And, and there is a big chunk of people who are in their 50s now who in the next 10 years will, and there's more of them, that will become your target market very quickly. And if you haven't worked out the best way or the best ways to target them, then you're going to miss that boat because someone else will come in and see what you're doing and work out how to do it better. So you've spoken quite a bit there about the things you took away from your time at Birchbox and are now using. Just because I know what the answer to this question is, can you go back a few roles and tell people about what you've taken from those previous roles? Yeah, so I have had a very diverse career, I think that is fair to say. And I think one of the things that I love about my career is even things that might have seemed like a misstep at the time always added something crucial. But there was always something that ended up being like, I would only be in this position because that happened. So, you know, I I started my career in physical retail. I went to work for Dixon Stores Group when I graduated. That gave me this very, very commercial founding. Everything was about, you know, the Monday morning numbers. Then I went to work for News International. So I went to work for Rupert Murdoch. There I was doing magazine subscriptions. So I got this kind of real kind of subscriptions thing. And that was before subscriptions were a big thing that they are now. So I really, really understand subscriptions. I then went to work for Playboy. And very much because I had this very, you know, at the time, direct mail, you know, focus, subscriptions focus, then going to work for Playboy, which was suddenly being able to do that, plus the above the line, you know, TV advertising, PR, Hugh Hefner's 80th birthday party, you know, that then suddenly saying, oh, do you know what the value of that top of funnel stuff, as well as that bottom of funnel conversion things, and then kind of taking that step into the early days of film streaming, that, you know, leaving Playboy because I had got a job in film streaming because at the time nobody else had experience in video on demand. But of course, porn is always at the forefront of new technology. So then going to build a streaming service, getting into that um, tech side for the first time and really that kind of product development thing that I never done before. And, you know, kind of the, again, my skill set and my my career has evolved and my skills have evolved over the years. And I think one of the things that I think has been key to my success, I love learning. I love finding out about new stuff. And that's enabled me to keep evolving and reiterating what my career was, has it has then gone on and progressed to all kinds of different things. It's like, you know, you're saying I love learning, but I feel like that's almost the most essential thing to anyone who wants to be good at what they're doing. Because the moment we get stuck in this way that we think we know what we're doing, number one, we're going backwards. 
because we're never staying. And secondly, is you're never open to growing and trying new things. So I, that's like the essential thing from your whole career, which sounds amazing. It just feels like you're constantly learning more and more and growing while doing that. And now applying all of that to a whole new market. I mean, definitely. Key yeah, there. I was just I, I was thinking more like we first met, I was at Sky and you were doing video streaming. So we just met for drinks just to go. That's another person doing similar things in a similar sector. Let's just chat and work out if there's anything we can learn from each other. And I think from a career advice to other people, I think that that's something that's certainly worth considering is that you learn so much from people who are doing similar things, but in a completely different sector or a different vertical that actually you can take little nuggets from and use, but also from a where your career has been varied if anything, you've got to, and it's the same for me, actually, we've got to the peak of the career where actually you're able to pull on the major plot points from your previous stories and go, okay, I can take subscriptions from three of these. They're all different types of subscriptions. Some were physical, some were digital. I can take the understanding of how a commercial operation works, which I think so many marketers have no clue what PL stands for, let alone how to manage a PL, let alone actually how to build a structured PL correctly. People don't even appreciate the, the understanding of margin calculations. And I know that even like what we were doing at Birchbox was ultimately incredibly complicated because you had margins on subscriptions that were different to margins on e commerce, and a customer could have both of them and trying to calculate that correctly. It's incredibly complicated, but because you have that foundational knowledge, it's built up to the point now where the challenges you're facing are not necessarily in the foundational elements of how the business is running. It's more in the challenges that you face on a sort of daily basis on where do I go and find the audience? How do I speak to them? And comically, we're basically talking about the four P's of marketing in some way which it all boils down to. But I think that young people who are starting their career in marketing, this is what becomes really interesting is they focus too much on, okay, what are the tactical things I can do today versus going, actually, do I know how this business runs? How do, does this, What does the CEO actually care about? Because the question they'll ask is very different to what the person ends up doing. And there is a misunderstanding of that big challenge. I think that where you were taking your career, you've been able to pull on all of those. So now when you take those roles that you have at the moment, those things are foundational. Is that, have I got all of that right? <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd 100% agree. I, um, I mentor a lot of people in my spare time because I genuinely believe that it's I find it incredibly rewarding and it's the best way to change the makeup of our industry long term is actually to change the people who are coming into the industry and are growing within the industry. And, you know, kind of the traditional idea was the career ladder. And now, like a lot of Americans call it as the career jungle gym, which sounds like, you know, incredibly complicated and painful. I call it the career bingo card because you're getting these random, you know, blocks all over the place. And then suddenly one day they make a line and you're like, oh, wow, this wasn't the plan, but it happened organically because I had a diverse skill set. Yeah. It's also a little bit because we're in that. You know, everyone always thinks nowadays that marketing is digital marketing. 
I think that's what's being forgotten is that marketing is so much more than digital marketing. And if you decide to study some of the foundational things about marketing and advertising campaigns in the past, et cetera, you learn so much. And I think that's also a little bit of that missing link that people just assume you don't really need education. You go into digital marketing, you figure it out. If you take the time to just read some of those books or get a little bit of foundational knowledge of marketing generally, you up your game to a point that's I mean, it's clear with you, right? You're now in digital marketing, essentially. That's all you're doing. But you didn't start that way. And and you're good at what you're doing because you have that foundation from everything else. Uh, And I think the interesting thing is you get get people coming up and it it, it might be that they've been in in marketing or digital marketing for sort of 15 years now. And they have been so encapsulated in what they do that they've been un- they're unaware of what other people around them do so much so that there's a number of people we work with where the direct mail team have never spoken to the social media team and neither of them really know what each other do they don't know the levers that people can pull on to make change and so you can be a you self like self-named marketing expert and only know how Facebook works. You can have eight, 10 years experience in Facebook marketing, well, not necessarily eight, 10, but like six, eight market, Facebook ads, marketing expert, and know everything. And then starting to learn about how CRM broadly, not just eCRM, but actually direct mail works, and the fact that subscription through mail has been going on for 30, 50 years, however long that is, and a lot of the things that you're trying to do in Facebook have been done for 50 years. It's the same principles. It's the same terminology. The reason why they use things like reach is because reach was used way back when. The reason why we have eyeballs is because it used to be physical eyeballs. Hate that term. but So a lot of what we are doing now, and I think that this is where, like, when we first were chatting, Janice, I was like, cool, you know more than just the thing that you're doing now. And so we could have conversations around, okay, well, that DM drop, what what impact can we do? What can we do digitally to support that and vice versa? And actually, one of the things that I advise the people I mentor is talk to the other people in the organization that are nothing to do with marketing, not just the creative team, but actually go to the other people in the company. And when I used to consult for businesses, I used to go and speak to the call center all the time because they're on the forefront of customer relations. They probably know more than most marketers do about the challenges and also how the business actually runs. And I know that that's something that you were doing at Birchbox as well. Yeah, I think there is something about just knowing what everyone else is doing and seeing how those things interconnect and those learnings that you you can get. You're like, well, why if one of you within the organization learned that something didn't work, then the rationale behind why is going to be valuable for, for everyone. And I think there's also the piece around psychological safety and kind of making sure you have that culture in the organization, not just where people talk to each other, but where the ideas from everyone are valued and not just the person who is seen as the expert. We just did really nice UX improvement on how you select colors on our website. And that came from the most junior person on the team because she felt like she could say, I don't like the way that this works. I think this website does it better. And we could take that idea and run with it and develop it. But if she kept her mouth shut, 
then we would have never improved that experience. Yeah, it's like it's like some of those big agency, you know, big companies like Booking.com and Amazon and stuff that they have the same culture around experimentation, right? That everyone's allowed to submit an idea. And there's a reason behind that because if you give a voice to everyone, you have a bigger brain essentially to work with. And yeah, I, I it's it's almost like people are afraid, right, to lose. It's an ego thing, isn't it? Like you're so afraid to lose your own value or, or to prove that you're good at something that you don't want to let anyone else talk. But the moment you let anyone else in, it boosts everyone so high. But it's nice to see that you're doing the same thing where you are and letting juniors people, people speak like that. Yeah, there's a really interesting stat that says actually a if you've got the like four like smartest person, people in the field together in a room, they will come up with less good ideas than a mixed ability group because the mixed ability group doesn't come with that kind of set of assumptions. Yeah. On a kind of big picture basis, it's just about growing the business. And I think it's growing, about growing the business in a crisis around costs of living where we have a product that is not, not essential. I think that is the, the kind of big challenge. I think that breaks down into lots of smaller challenges as to how do we how do we staff the business? How do we skill the business? How do we look at conversion and lifetime value and new customer acquisition and new product development and kind of all of those things to lead to that big job, big goal? We lost Russell for a second, but he'll come back. <laughs> How um, are there any like direct things that you have ideas about that you're going to address? For example, the cost of living thing is huge, right? Especially because your market is also a lot of them aren't actually making a living anymore. So they're on a fixed income when the cost of living is is increasing. So how are you addressing that a little bit other than maybe potential staff? Yeah, I think it's much more around kind of value and um, making sure that our customers, that we've got great deals on, you know, when they're ready to kind of replenish product and, and all of those things. And I think much as we approach the pandemic, it's much more about we're here for our customers to support them in what they need beyond us as a brand than necessarily about, yes, you know, yes, we do want them to buy product and that that makes a difference to our business. But we do that because we are there for them to support them through whatever they face, whether it's a pandemic or a cost of living crisis or a more personal issue. It's a good approach. Just hope it works, (laughs) right? Fingers crossed. (laughs) it's like no one really knows what to do. So everyone's just sitting there like, let's hope what we're doing works. And that's the great thing now that we have so much data that we learn every day. Oh, this is working. That's not working. And learning and adjusting all the time. Yeah. Do you notice that the data is allowing you to make decisions quite quickly and also drastic decisions that you didn't expect quite quickly? Or... Is it just more the expected? Yeah, I think particularly for us, we we see quite, because of the way that we run particularly our promotions, we see kind of variances in demand all the time. So we're able to see, right, well, that's working and this is not working and this is appro- this approach is right and this approach needs work and, and all of those things. So we every minute of every day, we're getting really useful, really useful data and we're able to adjust quite nimbly in terms of what we're we're able to do usually i think you know it's difficult because we don't have a huge team on the other hand so you know it does it, a lot of it does fall to well yes it would be nice to throw everything out and start again from scratch but realistically do we actually have the resource to, to do that yeah 
My my last question to you, you touched on it earlier, but I think I'm going to expand on it a little bit, Was is around mentoring and finding and supporting the community as a whole. And um, so I know you've done a bunch of speaking gigs recently, oh, over the years as well, and trying to support the community. And I know you do some mentoring. So just wanted you to talk a little bit about that, how you got into that and who you're helping, not people names, obviously, but like the types of people and and, and advice to people who are, are looking to get some support or even offer mentoring themselves. And I would love to take add one question to that. I would also like to know what you've learned from mentoring others. Perfect. Well, I'll start with that one because that's really easy. Basically, the advice that I give other people tends to be the stuff that I most need to listen to my, myself. So I think that's the thing I get most from. It's shining a light on, yeah, intellectually, you know this enough to tell somebody else that, but to what extent are you actually listening to that as your own advice? So that's definitely the thing that I get on. I the practical thing I get out most beyond a wonderful sense of seeing, you know, great, great things from the people that I've mentored is incredibly valuable. I have a mix of people that I mentor. Some are kind of a little bit more ad hoc kind of, oh, I'm facing a specific issue. Some are much more kind of, we have a regular or long-term relationship. Some of them are informal where people have either seen me speak or we have met um, at an event or something like that and they've approached me after that. Others are more formal that in particular what Rob Jackson does at WIC Digital is amazing, that it's essentially it's an 11-week program where they take young people from all kinds of diverse backgrounds and they teach them paid search, paid social and Google Analytics. And at the end of that, they're, they're trained up enough to start an entry level role in those fields. And that's incredible that, you know, I've mentored um, two young women so far from, you know, very different backgrounds that would not have traditionally gone into that career. And that is. We'll, we'll put a link to, to Rob's company in the description for this video and um, for the podcast as well, because basically what he's doing is an extension of what the Prince's Trust tried to do a few years ago. Uh, but this is very more focused on marketing uh, from a digital aspect. So we definitely want to shout out to Rob and, and what he's doing at WIC. No, no, um, that, sorry, that's, carry on, that's fine because, you know, I, I'm 100% on board with that. I think what WIC do is absolutely incredible and I think – there is an opportunity both to mentor um, and to from companies um, to take WIC graduates as well. So I would definitely have a big shout out for that. But yeah, I think from a somebody looking for a mentor perspective, do you know what? If you see someone that says something interesting on LinkedIn or you see them speak at an event, go chat to them, go send them a message. Don't send them like a blank connection request. Send them a, I thought that was really interesting what you had said about X. I would love to talk with you further about that. And that is, you know, the start of those relationships. Almost universally, I can say that I will always take the time when it's somebody who genuinely is looking for help and support. When they're looking to sell me something, that's something different. But when they're generally looking for, for help and support in their career, that I'm always there. And, and I, you know, have mentored a range of people from the WIC 
is like very much at the beginning of their career to particularly now I particularly I mentor someone who is further on in her career and is, is like, well, actually, how do I take that to the next level? Because I think that is a really is a challenge for women in particular, that piece that you've, you've reached that kind of, you know, head of type role. How do you take that step up? Big advocate for what women on boards do as well and encouraging more women to think about where a board role might fit in their career. Yeah, I think mentoring is so important, not just for the person being mentored, but also for the mentor because you learn so much. I know just through this podcast, a lot of people reach out to me, you know, and they want a chance to talk or, or get a chance to be to look for a mentor. And I have to say the what I learn from them equals, if not exceeds what they're getting out of me. So it is definitely a two-way relationship. And that's exactly why people shouldn't hold back for reaching out because both are benefiting from it. As we're wrapping up, I wanted to ask you, Janice, where do people find you? Where can they reach out to you, et cetera? LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Instagram, lots and lots of events that I am always out and about and always happy to chat um, with people. That is the joy of in-person events and being back at those. It's just wonderful to talk to people. I was at a two-day event earlier in this this month where I actually just got to hang out with a load of really, really interesting people and chat about what they were doing. And it was I before I went, I was like, oh God, it's two days. Why did I agree to do this? I got so much out of it. And I think that's also key is like, yeah, it's time out of your diary to go to one of these events. But you will come away with so many ideas and it's very much about what you, you'll get out, what you put in. So we'll make sure to drop some links to find out where you're speaking, etc. So they get to talk to you in person and make sure to subscribe to Marketing Unfucked below. Thank you so much, Janice. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.